The NBA Finals are heating up. Looking for hot takes on all the postseason action? The Old Man and the Three, presented by BMW, is the podcast to listen to for the ultimate finals coverage. Host and former NBA sharpshooter J.J. Redick not only has a plugged-in perspective on the action from his time in the league, but he's also announcing the games in real time for ESPN. J.J. has the ultimate insider point of view, and he's taking you along for the ride as he breaks down the best defensive schemes, dunks, and drives from each game. And speaking of incredible drives, there's no better place to tune into your new favorite podcast, The Old Man and the Three, than in a standard-setting BMW. Luxury meets power to create a wholly new driving experience. Push the limits this NBA season with the brand that set the ultimate standard. BMW, the ultimate driving machine. to another episode of the Flyers Talk podcast. Katie Emmer, as always, with Jordan Hall. And Jordan, we have a very special guest with us today. Mr. Bill Clement is in the Thank house, you. sort of in the house. He's in his house in the middle of the mountains in North Carolina, Bill. Um, how's everything hey, going? What have you been up Jordan? to? Uh, well, uh, the one thing we all have in common is we haven't been up to hockey, right? <laughs> so... Uh, I love the outdoors and our home is 4,000 feet up on the side of a mountain and uh, I bought myself a new chainsaw and I'm, I'm down thinning trees and piling stuff and acting like the outdoorsman that I've always, you know, enjoyed doing. I mean, I grew up in, in the woods in, uh, in Quebec. Uh, my dad bought a little acreage, but we used to go and cut big trees and cut them up for pulp wood and that's how we made our extra money. I had a chainsaw in my hands from the time I was about 12 years old and and I have all my fingers and all my toes. Yippee! <laughs> so you know how to you're knowing how to uh, stay busy, Bill, during this break from hockey. Yeah, I like to work with wood too. So my wife needed a new spice rack for the pantry. Um, I'm, and we have a lot of carpenter bees, and they're really aggressive. They're big. They're like bumblebees, but they're not. And you can build these little square wooden houses with four holes in the sides and an empty water bottle attached to the bottom of them. I don't know if you've ever seen them and the bees will find their way into the holes because they're curious. They'll get down into the water bottle and not be able to get their way out. And for all of the insect rights activists that are out there, I'm sorry, but it's our deck and we were here first. Okay. The carpenter bees are trying to nest in our deck. (laughs) That's my story for the insect rights people. I was going to say, I've seen so many videos of, different wildlife getting into houses or on porches and to imagine you're in the middle of the mountains do you have any fear of bears coming up do you have any other wildlife that you would have seen or that you're protecting yeah. yourself from i mean what do you do yeah, well it's funny you should mention that katie funny you should mention that i i knew there were a lot of black bears and we there's a big field kind of going down the mountain beside our home so we've been watching a lot of wild turkeys out there there are coyotes here um we've seen black bear but we don't have a stairway going from the ground up onto our deck, which was one of the things I liked about the house. Because if I'm out of town traveling, I didn't want my wife to have to wake up in the middle of the night and say hello to this big black creature on the deck. And we don't feed birds on our deck. So bears love the protein of bird seed. We don't have bird seed. We don't have easy access to the deck. We see them. But fortunately, we don't see them outside our bedroom window at 2 a.m. 
and they're rattlesnakes and copperheads. Um, yeah, I was so surprised I, until I saw a big rattlesnake on the road one day. Jordan, how would you do it? On the pavement. Was I was that? Say, I was asking Jordan, because I don't know. Jordan, what would you do if you saw a black bear in your front porch? I'd probably call Bill Clement. That's probably yeah. what I would do <laughs> to get my best advice to, uh, to stay alive and not let it get the best of me. Jordan, I hate to tell you this, but I wouldn't answer. <laughs> if I know it's you calling now, I will not yes. answer. <laughs> I would say, run. Run. No, listen, with black bears and people teach you, if you see a black bear, the worst thing that you can do is get between a cub and it's and a sow, right? And, and the female bear. So you try not to do that. But if you see a bear, they we're not on their menu. So move away, look big. You can use a voice, a loud voice. But when you move away, do not turn your back on them. Really? You back away from a black bear facing them. And is that like a sign for them to... Like attack, basically? It's a sign for them that I'm as scared as I really am. Oh. I turn around and yeah. run, right? And they think yeah. they're on the run, and they'll track you down from behind very often. This isn't, a, this isn't North Carolina, but in Montana, my family took a nice little RV trip about three years ago. And first ziplining endeavors, I can't remember what mountain it was, but we were on a mountain in the middle of the summer. My mom is taking a photo of all of us kids, of my brothers and, and uh, cousins and whatnot, getting strapped up, learning how to do the zip line, getting taught. Yeah. And she's standing down the mountainside, and I thought it was a black, almost, I don't know, German shepherd. But this black blob is running towards her, and she's holding the camera, and the instructor stopped talking and like, <gasps> and I was like, what? And I looked out, and my mom's like about to be like, hi, puppy. It was a baby cub that's running through the, through the grass oh. into the pine trees. <laughs> and all of us were like, he's like, take your helmets off. Everyone get inside the lodge right now. Yeah, and because there's, a mama. there's, there's yeah. a mama coming right behind, probably. Right. right, and that's exactly what it was. So we're all just sitting there and just, I don't know, there's bears where I grew up in Minnesota, but I don't think we've ever had that close of an encounter. My mom was like, I thought it was a little dog. I was like, that thing is at least like over 160 pounds, probably sure. 300 pounds. I don't know how much those little cubs are, but a big. good story, good times. We were safe. There was no mom scene, and I got to go zip lining, just for the record. There we go. You got to yeah. be safe. Yes. <laughs> so you guys have turned this into a nature show. This is fantastic. I know. <laughs> yes. You know what? It's nature. It's nature with Bill Clement. That's right. what we should start hockey. doing here. Well, let's, we're going to get to the hockey jungle at some point, right? Oh, right. Okay. We may as well get into it now. Um, okay. And Jordan, I mean, we were both getting ready for, you know, having the one and only Bill Clement on. You have such an extensive resume from your playing days to your um, broadcast days to even your acting days. Yeah. Um, I guess we'll start all the way back to your playing days, 11 seasons, uh, plenty of memories that you've mentioned, but starting with just your biggest favorite memory from your playing days and maybe the, the biggest thing that stood out to you all these years. Uh, well, there is no feeling. I don't care who you are, what sport you play. There's no feeling like winning Stanley Cup for the first time. And when we won our first cup, it was the first cup for all of us. It's so surrealistic, you almost believe that it hasn't happened. And we had to nurse a one nothing lead in game six against the Boston Bruins in 1973 to win the cup. We were incredible underdogs. We went into Boston in game one, and we were tied going into the last minute and with 22 seconds to go. Ken Hodge tackled Moose DuPont in the corner. There was no call. Not that it still bothers me. 
But uh, Wayne Cashman came in and turned around, and Bobby Orr was wide open, coming right down the middle of the ice. So we lost game one with 22 seconds to go. We didn't have home ice advantage, so we had to win a game in Boston, and we would have taken overtime to score that, you know, that one goal to get us our win. Game two, two nights later, was just as exciting, and we were down by a goal going into the last minute. And Moose Dupont, poetic justice, was you know dished up to him, and he scored with 51 seconds to go to force overtime, and Bobby Clark scored in overtime. We came back, we won games three and four in Philadelphia, and we had a chance to win the Stanley Cup on Boston ice. And game five, we we sucked. We were brutal. We lost five to one, and it could have been eight to one. And uh, so we came back to Philadelphia knowing that this was our best chance to win the Stanley Cup. We didn't want to have to go back to Boston. Phil Esposito was in his prime. They had Busick and McKenzie and Cashman and Hodge and Orr. We ended up winning game six, one nothing, which was oh the longest last few minutes of a game. But when the final horn went and we won. The, the, the flood of emotions is actually overwhelming. It can almost bring you to your knees. It is so exhilarating, surrealistic. That childhood dream that all of us had to win a Stanley Cup, it happened. Right? Here we are, most of us in our early 20s, and it, and it actually happened. There's nothing that would ever, will ever replace that feeling. The next year, we won in six against the Sabres, yeah. and we won in, in Buffalo. And... Buffalo only was in the league for five years at that time. And they had a good team. The French connection, uh, they were exciting. They were big. They were tough. But they never won a game in the spectrum. And we had home ice advantage. So our thought was, and I know that it was all of our mentalities, if it takes seven, we'll get it done in seven. The year before against Boston, we didn't have that thought of, if it takes seven, actually it should have been, if it takes seven, we don't want to be there. We <laughs> want to be. We want to win it in six at home. So that's my greatest memory is winning our first Stanley Cup and what it felt like. How how neat, Bill, was the city at that time? Was there anything oh. like it? No. No, I was really kind of new to. I mean, championships were pretty new to Philadelphia, or at least it had been championship starved. I think the Phillies won their, you know, their thirty games and the the. Eagles went two and 12 and the 76ers won a half a dozen games or eight or 10 or 12. And so we were the breath of fresh air and it happened at the right time. You know, a city struggling with its self-esteem. I'll tell you this, that a lot of my teammates and I have talked about this. There was such an, an overdosing of emotion by people in Philadelphia that when we won at home in game six, people started crawling over the glass and coming onto the ice. And there were hundreds of people on the ice. You go back and look at the video. We didn't get a chance to skate around with the cup, you know, with Clarky and Bernie and, 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 and all, all of us together. And you can see Dave Schultz, me and a couple of other guys just taking people and throwing them down onto the ice to get them out of the way. Cause people would come up and latch onto us. And they, you know, they just grab onto you and say, we did it, we did it, we did it. And I, I remember thinking, what is this we thing, Kimosabi? Yeah. You know, I don't, <laughs> I don't remember you coming into town with us when we had to go to Boston. But it was, and I get it, I get it. But it was great when we finally got into our locker room because we could, you know, we could be together and be by ourselves, by ourselves. Yeah, and a lot of the guys, it was, everybody came into the room, not the fans, so many guys that took off part of their gear, they had it taken, they had it stolen. 
I kept my, oh my jersey gosh. on on for three hours after the game, and wow. I knew where my gloves were, and uh, so it was, it was it was surrealistic in so many ways. Those are little things after the fact that somebody said, "Hey, did you get your sweater?" I said, "Yeah, I got my sweater. Where's yours?" I don't know. It disappeared from the locker room. Oh my god! See, Tom Brady, the Tom Brady deal. But, I was gonna say that's kind of yeah. the same scenario. Who the hell's Tom Brady, right? <laughs> No, but that's that's funny. You know, I, I'm sure, again, the, the city of Philadelphia, as we all know, they love their sports. They love their flyers. And in that time, to jump onto the ice and grab you, you're like, who are you? What do you mean we did it? <laughs> yes, do, have we <laughs> met? Just, yeah. <laughs> do we know each other? I'm, I'm sorry. I don't quite remember your name. Oh, man. The face you, is familiar. Okay. No, it was, uh, it was fantastic. Nothing's better than winning. Um, nothing is better than losing together and everybody feeling responsible and knowing that you're going to turn it around as a group being really closely knit. And I've seen it both ways. I was traded to the Washington Caps after we won our second cup. I was part of the deal that got the first overall pick of the, of the Washington Caps. Uh, they were drafting number one overall and I knew the Flyers wanted Mel Bridgman. Uh, so I was part of the deal. When I went to Washington, we, we were a second year expansion team and we were horrendous yeah. I got, they did a coaching managerial change halfway through the season and I got traded to Atlanta. When I got traded, we had just, the night before I got traded, had just played our 21st consecutive game without a win. 21. Yeah. And guess what? I got to Atlanta. They got a couple of players for me in a pick. Yeah. And there was no internet then. It was like 1975, six. And the guys open up the paper in the morning. Oh, Washington Caps win. They, they won the next game after they – I was a captain. You know, I was, it was supposed to be a big deal down there. We go 21 without a win. They trade me, and they win the next game. I never heard oh. the end It's in Atlanta. Oh, never it's heard. just luck. It had nothing to do with you leaving. I'm sure yeah. it's just luck. Guess, uh, guess what? I, th I still think, and I, I, I haven't checked lately, but from years, I believe I still am, the only player to play three games on three consecutive nights for three different teams. Consecutive nights. But it's kind of a trick question because I represented Washington in the All-Star game on a Monday night, played for Washington on a Tuesday night, then I played for Atlanta on a Wednesday night. So That's awesome. That's quite a, uh, quite, or was I tired? Quite a record. Was yeah, I tired? not bad. I don't know if it is official, but we're just going to, you know, on the Flyer Stock podcast, that's an official record. You're the only one. Yeah. Because um, I sure, I don't know about Jordan, I sure don't know anybody that's been able to accomplish that sort of feat. You don't, um, want to, you don't want to accomplish that sort of feat. <laughs> I know. I put it that way, and I was like, you know, it is cool, though. You know? Yeah. It's great. I mean, it's um, a great conversation starter when everything else fails. Yeah. <laughs> no, for sure. You you mentioned Bobby Orr, all these different players during that time. Yeah. What would Who would you say was the specific player that was the toughest to play against? And then in today's uh, day and age in the NHL, who is the toughest today? Uh, well, that's a, that's, that's, that term toughest – can be defined in many ways. They're, you know, the, the, the toughest players to play against were the players that could beat you single-handedly, right? They're the toughest to defend. There are all kinds of guys that were tough, like could fight and they were strong. Um, but the two best players for me that I played against, one at the beginning of my career, one at the end of my career, the first one is Bobby Orr. I mean, he, he redefined the position of defense he did things that were so unpredictable, that were so explosive, that were so dynamic. Uh, and Freddie Shiro, our coach, found a way to defend against him. 
but he was so brilliant. I'll, I'll tell you how he did it. But, but Bobby Orr was as electrifying as any player ever. And Freddie Shiro came up with a game plan to defend against Bobby Orr. And the plan was when we were forced to dump the puck into the, into the offensive zone, dump it into Bobby Orr's corner. And the first reaction for most of us was, sounds a little counterintuitive, Freddie. Let's give the puck to him, right? But we knew that our forecheck was good, and if we could get on him quickly, he would move the puck somewhere. But the, here was the catch. He said, whoever that first forechecker is that forces the pass, stay with him. Stay between him and our goal all the way back up the ice. And he wasn't able to really generate all that much. So it was really cool uh, how that worked out. Freddie was so ahead of his time. At the end of my career, the brilliance of Wayne Gretzky was, it was awe-inspiring, not breathtaking because Wayne was faster than people think, although he wasn't blazing speed. His shot, his slap shot was better than people think, but it wasn't one of the best. He didn't have much of a wrist shot, but nobody ever thought the game like Wayne. He was the David Copperfield of hockey because he would literally find a moment where it seemed like everybody was looking the other way and he would disappear. And he knew where the play was going, what was going to happen, his intuition, the work that he did with his dad, legendary salt and pepper shakers on the table, going over diagrams and everything. Uh, he, he would reappear. And I remember when I played in my last two years in Calgary and Wayne was playing in Edmonton. I, this is like, I played three years against Wayne at the end of my career. I remember getting to the bench and I had the assignment very often of playing against his line. I remember getting there with my lineies going, you had him. Why'd you let him go? So I didn't have him. You had him. No, I, well, didn't you have him? I thought you had him. I mean, he just, he was, he disappeared and reappeared all the time. And his 50 goals in 39 games, you know what I hadn't realized until recently? I started looking at some of his records. He got 50 in, in less than 50 games, two other times. It's a couple of years after he scored 50 and 39, he got 50 and 42 games. Then two years later, he got 50 and 49 games. It's no big deal to Gretz. He was uh, remarkable and a remarkable person. So was Bobby Orr, by the way. Just a real class act. Is, is, there, a player, is there a player from those two or two players that you see translate? I mean, we've seen Alex, Alex Ovechkin, what he's been able to do. Cindy yeah. Crosby could be right up there. Who is the player here in 2020 that you think is one of the biggest threats, you know, in a like with those two players maybe? There's nobody like that. Well, the game has changed, Katie, right? I mean, I've said for years, I said, I remember back in the trap era, I said, look, I, I just like to see somebody score 60 before I die or 70. Wayne scored 92, right? But the game has changed so much, and I understand that. Um, there are so many brilliant players now. You know, I, I look at Ovechkin. So I, I could play against Bobby Orr. I could play against Gilbert Perrault head-to-head. They could fly. I could really skate. I didn't know what to do when I got the puck, and I didn't always know what to do when I got there, even when I skated really fast. But I could keep up with guys. So defending guys with speed wasn't a big deal for me. Um, I can see myself today trying to defend Connor McDavid and uh, uh, Nate McKinnon. Uh, and, I, and, you know, you have to angle right. You have to get a jump on him. You have to anticipate all of those things. The guy I think that I would have the most trouble defending, and, and it's, I wouldn't be the only guy, is Alex Ovechkin, the greatest scorer of this era. 
and with a chance to perhaps knock on the door of, of Wayne Gretzky's, you know, total goal record. He's so driven. Uh, his shot is so unbelievable. He's so hungry, but he's just a damn beast, yeah. right? I mean, he's 232 pounds. He's, he's a predator as much as he is the prey. So, you know, he, he would be really difficult to play against because he can overpower just about anybody in the game. Really tough. And you know what? As far as guys that can think the game, Claude Giroux has omnivision. I mean, and, and the, the saddest thing about the way the season's gone is not only where the Flyers were and how, how we were trending, but Jake and G were playing the best hockey of the season right? They were starting to rev it up and everybody else was going. TK was going. Coots was having another, you know, fantastic year. Joel Fairby is getting a chance to reintroduce after JVR's entry. There were so many great things going on, but I've told a lot of people, I said, guess what? Tampa Bay has been due for a cup for the last four years and they were built to win it and they were rolling. The Bruins had a hundred points in the East. So we're not the only ones that are disappointed. The St. Louis Blues, the Colorado Avs in the West, you know, so there are a lot of teams, but I, I really think that Boston, Tampa, and Philadelphia and the Flyers were the three teams that, that you would have to give the nod to one of those three teams to come out of the East. And I really believe the Flyers could have and, and still might, right? Obviously, we're not sure if the NHL will resume this season, uh, but how far do you think this team could have gone and what, what did you really like about this team? Everything. The young defensemen were on top of their game. Ivan Provorov and Matt Niskanen, to me, are one of the top six D pairs. Neither one of them might be a top six defenseman. Close. I think, I think Ivan's close. But I think as a pair, I think they're a top six D pair in the NHL on both sides of the puck. And the other guys were coming along. There were some you know, injuries near the end. But Phil Myers, Travis Sanheim took huge steps forward this year in the D zone. With the acquisitions at the trade deadline, I, I loved uh, Grant and Thompson. I think Chuck Fletcher really filled in the blanks so that everybody could be slotted properly. And what's there not to like about Carter Hart? Yeah. He's a big game player. And you know what? Anytime he faltered, I think Brian Elliott deserves the Unsung Hero Award for the Flyers because he put in some fantastic efforts this season. So you look at the whole roster, deep, um, and guys with, uh, you know, Nick, Ovi Kubel, the way he turned it on near the end of the year, guys in the minors that come up in the play. Mark Friedman came up, and I thought played a heck of a game when he had to. I think Phil was sick. Somebody was sick that, that game. But, you know, the Flyers are deep uh, in every position, including goaltending, and they believe in their system, and it's a good one. It's a wow. real good one. And Alain Vigneault believe. When I think of Alain Vigneault, I think of a guy that is the most secure coach I've ever met. What he knows, he believes in, and it's good, and he has conviction. And nobody's going to talk him out of it, and he's not defensive about it. It's just, hey, this is the way we do it. It's good enough. We're going to win. Remember when he guaranteed he was going to make the – he said, we're going to make the playoffs. When did he do that? In early February when the Flyers were not – they weren't in the playoff spot when he said that. He said, we're going to make it. Yeah. All of a sudden, they were in first place for a few days. And if the NHL happens to rewind, I believe, to the 68-game mark, wouldn't the Flyers be in first place in the Metro Division? And wouldn't they get one of the wild cards? Wouldn't they get Carolina? Oh. <laughs> yeah, you, you said he was talking about making it to the playoffs. He was confident about that. Uh, we all saw that from Elaine Vino and 
going back to you saying, you know, Chuck Fletcher really filled in all the blanks and he sure did on that topic of Elaine Vino as well. And his first season, um, his transparency, um, also his humor, how much fun he has. Also something else that really stood out was calling out the top guys, Phil. Remember at the beginning of the season, you know, early on, wasn't happy with what he was getting from Giroux, you know, from Voracek. And then you see these guys respond to that. We've asked Farabee this question too, how positive for a young player like him, what that, what's that like? Because he has had different coaches already in his time to have a, a coach that's so transparent. What do you think it's like to play under Elaine Vigneault? I have no idea. The coaches didn't communicate all that much when I played, but I would love it. I mean, he's, he's so progressive in that regard. Um, and he doesn't tell us anything that he hasn't already told them, right? Yeah. So they're okay with that. There are so many coaches that communicate through the media. That is a horrible way to attempt to motivate an athlete to drop something and so that a kid sees it written in the written about him, right? Tell him first. And then you can tell the world and say, he already knows it. I told him. And that's what AV does. I said, I've already told him. I'm not telling you guys anything that, that he doesn't know. So yeah, he's not afraid to call players out, but when he calls them out, he doesn't do it in an angry sense. He says, they're our top players and we're not getting enough from them to be a top team right now. They're really good players and we need more from them. That's pretty straightforward, right? Haven't raised your voice, haven't done anything other than let people know you're being counted on here. And, and you, know what, you know what they know. You can fill in the, the blank on this and you are being paid accordingly, right? No coach ever is dumb enough to mention a player's salary, he shouldn't, right? It's not the player's fault he's making that much money, he earned it or he had this timing was right or whatever. So, there, but there's that unwritten, they're key players and we need them. And the players know what clicks in their head. And for the amount of money I'm making, I should be one of the best players on this team. I better get going. I, and, and you know, in-game, his in-game adjustments are as good as anybody's I've ever seen. And he can tell in the first period, he usually gives his players a chance early in the second period to get going. But if you're not, it's different with defensemen, right? Because you've got three pairs. You can't. It's really hard. The guy has to really stink the joint out to sit him down in the second period because you're going to shorten your bench to five. But forwards, in the third middle part of the second period, whether it's Joel Farabee, doesn't matter who it is. Uh, you know, Scott Lawton, uh, Michael Roffel, um, Jake Voracek, um, all of a sudden you're sort of watching the game and that's uh he's never done that unfairly players know i know you know watching and there are some coaches you just die with them right to the end of the game right to the end of the series right to the end of the season not av he's decisive and he'll hold his can- hand over the candle longer than anybody yeah until it's time for him to take it you know take it away and go okay let's get moving and i've, I've talked to people that work with him in the past I have a good friend that was his assistant in Vancouver for seven years, Rick Bonas, who took over from Jim Montgomery in Dallas. And Bones was the head coach in Dallas when everything stopped. And he said, I worked with him for seven years. And he said, the Vancouver media tried to get under his skin. They were really hard on him. They were aggressive with him in press conferences. I never saw him change his demeanor. I never saw him sweat. And he just kept doing what he does, coaching the way he coaches. And it's good. It always works. So, yeah. If he, if he needs a new agent, I think he should sign me up. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, Bill, was he just given his big market experience like Vancouver, New York, Montreal? Yeah. He just seemed like uh, the city really embraced him throughout this season. Was he a guy that you could just envision winning a cup in the city? No question. I envisioned them winning in New York. You know, they were up three games to two in the finals against L.A. Yeah. And, and they lost. So I could definitely see him winning a cup here. And look, he's got a, what is it, a six-year deal? So, do you know, offhand, is it five or six years? I think it's five. a Or it might be six, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, it might be six. So he's got security. Yeah. You know, he's got, you know, a, an organization that believed in him enough to sign him to a healthy six-year deal. And that gives you a little bit of security too. But I, I don't think it would have mattered to AV. I think they could have brought him in on a one-year deal and he would have coached the same way. He's, yeah. one, he's the most consistent person. But And listen, with Michelle Therrien, with Ian LaPerriere, with Mike Yo on the bench, it really helps to have two former head coaches. And, and, and I talked to, you know, people in the organization. And Ian LaPerriere told me when I worked with him at Flyers Fantasy Camp last summer, he said, you wouldn't believe how organized AV is when, he, when we started our meetings one whole afternoon was all penalty kill. The next day in the morning was all power play. One was all face-off situations at even strength the next day. And he had it all mapped out. He said he's easily the most organized, the most thorough guy. So that they're, the, the one thing that a player or an assistant coach can't stand is to ask a head coach, what do we do in this situation, and have him not be able to give him an answer. And there are guys that are still like that, not many of them, uh, especially with all the assistants. There were guys when I played like that, and boy, oh boy, you, you want to lose your locker room? Just just walk in without the right answers. Yeah. A AV doesn't have to worry about that, especially with his assistants. Yeah, that veteran coaching staff, we've talked yeah. so much about it. I mean, it truly is unique in the NHL. It's not always you have that, you know, behind your bench, all former um, head coaches and what they've been able to do, even Mike Yo with, you know, different special teams and Michelle Terrian fitting into it. They've certainly been helping out. Um, you know getting just, just another point on that. Uh, there's so many teams that have hired young head coaches or coaches that haven't been head coaches or like Ralph Kruger coming back from Europe, you know, to Buffalo. Or the Blackhawks too, another young coach, yeah. But there are so many viable head coaches that still have game that are out of work. So if you look yeah. around, you, you'd be surprised how many more former head coaches there are that are behind the bench as assistants now. They need work, yeah. right? Like everybody else, and a lot of and a lot of organizations trust their their brain power to help out, just like Alain Vigneault and, and Chuck Fletcher have with Flyers, and it's it works for them, working great. Yeah. No, and Jordan agrees to this. So many of us agree to this. You do a great job with NBC uh, Sports Philadelphia on the Flyers broadcast. But we know you have been everywhere and anywhere. Um, I mentioned your playing days, but now into the broadcast days, you've done national, you've done local. Starting with national, what's it like to work with uh, Mike Doc Emmerich? What, what is that like? What were your favorite memories with working with him? He's a, such a great person. Um, and a passionate broadcaster and a hard worker and a generous partner. I mean, you, if you want to try to examine the qualities of a broadcaster, it, it starts with sharing the booth, right? There's not a wall in between a play-by-play -play guy and, a, and an analyst. And that's why working with JJ, with Jim Jackson in Philadelphia, it's, it's so wonderful because he's so giving and so sharing and you try to reciprocate the doc, um, in many ways, one of a kind. He's so meticulous. 
when we started, there's no internet. There are newspapers and newspaper clippings and articles. And I go into this, you know, and say, you know, knock on my door and we'll go to breakfast or go to lunch or whatever. So knock on his door, open the door, his bed, the floor, everything covered in clippings. He's making notes. He's all over the place. He looked like the FBI room with all of the pictures up on the wall of all of the leads. You know, he's so thorough. And, uh, and that was so great because he, he, no stone was left unturned by Doc. He wanted to know every stat, wanted to know every story, wanted to know every human interest angle, you know, if there was one. Um, and we, we kind of put ourselves on the map as a pair in 1987, which was only my second season working for ESPN and Doc's first season. And we got to the playoffs. And when I start to remember the great games that, that I had, had a, an opportunity to call, game seven of the New York Islanders and the Washington Capitals series in 1987, I was pretty new to, to broadcasting, very new. Doc was new to television. And it was the longest game seven in NHL history. It went to four overtimes. And the hockey was, was fantastic. Um, and what made that game so memorable, and it was Easter weekend. Uh, it was actually Easter Eve. We finished the game at two minutes before 2 a.m. on Easter Sunday. And it was such an incredible game because there must have been 40 unbelievable scoring chances in overtime. There were seven breakaways in over the process of the four overtimes. And Kelly Rudy and goal for the Islanders and Bob Mason for the Washington Capitals were unbelievable until uh, Pat LaFontaine scored in the fourth overtime period. Um, and what our, so we had no video for between periods. We had, we had a couple of, there were no highlights. We had nothing pre-produced. So Doc and I were, were having to fill the whole intermissions. So I was always kind of a class clown, and I did impressions of Boom Boom Jeffrey on and an East. Oh, I've seen them. Yeah, so <laughs> Doc starts leading me to all of these impressions, and I, I, I took off my, my dress shirt. I had a T-shirt on underneath that I took you my tie. You put your tie. <laughs> my red tie. I tied it around my head. And what, what, you know, what a lot of people misunderstood was we weren't – like rule number one of broadcasting, and you know this, Katie – you're not the show, right? You're, you're there to deliver the drama and the stories from the show to people watching. So you, you never try to take away from the product on the ice, but we were out of material and we were punchy. By the third overtime period, we were starving. We had no food. All the concessions were out of food. There was a couple that left to go to a wedding in the evening on that Saturday evening. They came back at 1 a.m. and caught the last period and a half of overtime. Him and his tux, and she in her night nice gown that she went to the wedding in. So it was that crazy. And I remember the day after that, uh, we got we got ripped in USA Today by our director of programming at ESPN. So we left nobody without an opinion, right? And we put ourselves on the map, but it wasn't intentional. But we got ripped in USA Today by our own program director, vice president of programming. And the day after that. We both got bottles of Dom Perignon from the president of ESPN. So, you know, I mean. Mixed reviews. You like it or you don't? It worked. Nobody neutral, but the game itself <laughs> was fantastic. One of the memories that Doc and I, when we get a chance to sit Doc, when we sort of relive that. Remember how angry we were when we went out to get something to eat at Denny's after the game? I said, oh, yeah. 
we get to Denny's. There's a lineup of 20 people waiting to get into Denny's because the bars closed at 2 a.m. And we got there about 2.30, right? And everybody coming out of the bars is lined up at Denny's and all we want, give me some scrambled eggs or sausage or something. I don't think we ate till 3 a.m. It was pretty wild. That is pretty wild. Uh, Bill, those are some great national highlights for you. Uh, do you have any... Uh, flyers broadcast highlights that just kind of really stick out uh, when you think back. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, first of all, Doc and I were working for ESPN that same year in 87, and we covered the whole – we covered the Flyers most of the way, including in the finals yeah. against the Oilers. Yeah. And I uh, – the other day I started to look back. I mean, I, I become a YouTube freak, right, looking at everything from – I looked at the 10 best hockey brawls the other day. Oh, man. And then the 10 best hockey fights – and I loved them because I wasn't in any of them. You know, they were, they were great. Uh, so game six of the Flyers-Oilers series in the finals, the J.J. Daniel goal, right? The Flyers, they were slow starters that game like they were most of the season. They're down 2 nothing after one. Edmonton outshot them 15-5 in the first. And Gretzky and Messier and Curry and Glenn Anderson and Grant Fuhr, this is the juggernaut team, right? And – Flyers fight their way back to two to one after two coming into the third uh, Brian prop scores. And then a minute, and 24 seconds later, JJ scored and it's the loudest the spectrum ever was. But what I hadn't realized until I watched it again, the Flyers still had five minutes to play to nurse a one, a one goal lead against Wayne Gretzky and the Oilers and something I had completely forgotten about because nobody ever talks about it. And, and look, Ron Hextall won the Conn Smythe that year, one of the few players to win it on a losing team. Hexy was in goal for the Flyers, and he was so great. It's game six, right? They got the one-goal lead with a few seconds left. Edmonton dumps the puck in, but too close to Hexy. He grabs it, comes out of the net, sets it down, and he tries to airmail it out of the zone down towards the empty net. And he was pretty good at scoring goals. He'd already scored two in his career well, one, I guess, by then. Maybe. Yeah, one in the regular season. So he tries to airmail it out of the zone, and it looked like he was going right at the net. Mark Messier cuts it, cuts it down right at the blue line, and there were three or four orders in the zone. Hexy raced back into the net and had to make an unbelievable save on Mark Messier, and Ron Hextall came that close to allowing Edmonton to tie a game six. And it's one of those little things that unless you watch the game again, who's even going to remember it? Right? Yeah. Who are you going to write about it? First of all, I'm, I played my first nine years in the NHL without a helmet, so the fact that I can remember anything is pretty oh good. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, no, it, so many stories. I uh, asked some fans today, Jordan and I, we wanted to see what fans, uh, what big questions they had for you. Another one, um, and there was, a, there was a lot. You're a popular guy. People want to know. Um, one of them, though, you know, pertaining to broadcast, what was your favorite goal call alongside Gary Thorne? Wow. I feel like I'm stumping you today. There's a lot of uh, tough ones here. I'm not trying to make it too hard, but. I don't remember anything. Lot. Well, to be honest with you, I don't remember anything that, that I said as, as being memorable. I just tried to. Because you didn't wear a helmet for nine seasons in the NHL or what? What's your name again, ma'am? <laughs> <laughs> Who are you people and why are we doing this? Uh, you know what? I, I don't. I, I never look back and somebody said to me, how many games have you done? as a broadcaster and I said, I have no idea. And they said, do you think it's 2000? And I said, 
probably I started in 1986 and for a number of years I was doing like 120 a year so I guess but I don't keep track of stuff like that and I don't don't go ah I remember how good I was that game you know you just <laughs> want to deliver the product but being beside Gary when Wayne Gretzky uh, broke Gordy Howe's record record yeah yeah playing uh, against Vancouver in Los Angeles and Gary and I were there to call that game goal 802 uh, Gary Gary's got his pipes and he's got such a great voice and when he brings it with the energy the enthusiasm and the dramatic effect that he can bring to a call that that was fantastic and it, it's funny it was going to happen at some point, one way or the other, right? He was going to move ahead of Gordie Howe. But the fact that we were there and able to call that and hear Gary's call, he did it. He did it. Yeah. Um, I'll never forget. Gary was a, as, as great a partner as Doc was and, and JJ. And I, I, I made a list and I found it. I lost it. But I was, looking, I was cleaning up my office too. Anybody else do a lot of house cleaning? You know, hey, clean. you know what? <laughs> Nothing better to do right now, right? Right, right. Let's get and some I cleaning found this done. List. And I realized that in all the different sports that I've done, because I've been an, an analyst for uh, indoor soccer, an analyst for badminton, for ping pong. I don't know what NBC was thinking, but they said, okay, you're <laughs> going to be our expert analyst. In my career, I've worked with 36 different play-by-play -play partners. So I got a long list and many of them are great, but, but the guys that I work with the longest are Doc and Gary Thorne and Jim Jackson. And they're, they've, they did it and, and are still doing it for a long time. Gary Thorne still does Baltimore Orioles games. And those yeah. are some long games if you check the standings every year because the <laughs> Orioles ain't going anywhere. But um, they're, they're that good that they can do this that long and still have the passion that they have for it. That's awesome, Bill. And uh, just with all your experience, you've seen so many different playoff formats. Um, I really, we really wanted to get your take on, I know if the NHL does resume, they, there, there could be a possibility that they have to tweak the playoff format or maybe they experiment with more teams. Do you have any take on that? Would, what would you, would you think it'd be a good idea for the NHL maybe to experiment with more teams? Um, I just wanted to, your take on that. Well, I like, like most things, I have some kind of lame opinion on it, but to be, be honest with you, I spent most of the time wondering which model of resumption of this season might work. And there's no answer to it right now. There are different models, but there's no answer to which model because none of us knows how long. Um, I, I think more teams making the playoffs could be good. And it would have to be, they would have to be bottom teams, right? The last chance to make it and play perhaps a best of three series, maybe two more teams in the East that didn't make it, two more teams in the West, best of three and get it going quickly. Get it get it going within 48 hours at the end of the regular season. Look, they're dark horses and they're long shots anyway, so they shouldn't be handed an advantage. But that would give all of the other teams chance to rest up, recoup, and get ready. Probably be a five or six day stretch before any of them get going. You know, or you could start start them almost overlap them and start them simultaneously. But I think it would be a good idea to give all of the teams that legitimately made it, not calling this you know this new format illegitimate. But I, and it's hard. I yeah. played on some really good regular season teams in Atlanta, the Atlanta Flames. We were really good. We couldn't get by the best of three series. We lost four of them. One to LA, one to Toronto, one to Detroit, two to LA. 
it's like, oh my God. And we won the first game and lose the last two. So yeah. it's a tricky, it's a slippery slope when you play a three game series. But if you wanted to, to increase the playoff opportunities, I would do a very short first round series for those teams that make it. I was just going to say, it's extremely different from you. I mean, there was less teams and like to begin with. So there was a less, uh, a smaller playoff format. Now we're looking at an extensive playoff format. Potentially there could be even more teams, which yeah, the best of three is very interesting. Something we really haven't heard much. We've heard maybe a best of five, but Bill, I like the best of three, just get them through quick. And again, it's all up to when they're going to start up again, no matter what the season isn't going to be the NHL season we're all used to. So you may as well be creative. Right? Yeah, I'm sure. sure. It's not fun. By the way, I don't want to leave this behind, but you know what? We were talking about, about memorable games. I got talking about yeah. that. There was no greater series to call and no greater game to call than the 2010 Flyers Bruins and the game seven of that series. When the Flyers went down three games to none, and then they come, first of all, making the, there was, that was one of the most magical stretches of like two and a half weeks of my whole broadcasting career. Because I got got to call. I don't call all the games, but you know when Jonesy gets busy on NBC, um, I fill in. So I got to call Game 82, the yeah. overtime game against the Rangers. Whoever wins goes to the playoffs. Whoever loses stays home, goes to overtime, goes to a shootout. And I was just reading an article quoting Bush, you know Brian Boucher on how nervous he was. And he was just praying like, oh, don't get to win it in overtime. Let's yeah. not. Out. Henry Lundqvist is at the other end, you know, the greatest shootout goalie in the NHL. And to see Bush win that and then go down three games to none and then claw their way back and then go down three games, three, three to nothing in goals in game seven in Boston. And then to come back and win, I was like, what do we just see here? You know, you think you've seen it all, but if you hang around long enough, there's always something you haven't seen. And that was it. That was so thrilling. I loved it. 2010 flyers yeah. tried to win the stanley cup with like an example of how i remember ryan parent and lucas krychek were the flyers fifth and sixth defensemen and the poor kids fell off the face of the earth and couldn't play at that level at that time of the season and the flyers tried to win the stanley cup they had to peter levy let try had to win the stanley cup with chris pronger kimo timonen Braden coburn and matt carl and they, yeah. went, they got to six games overtime yeah. and Games. It was a remarkable performance by that team. Yeah, you, you talk about the 2010 Santa Cup playoffs, Jordan, and all of us. We had this end to end going. If Danny Briere should be inducted into the Hall of Fame, and he had 30 points in that Stanley Cup playoff season, the most Danny, by really? any other I, player in, in I the playoffs. That, that he had 30 yeah. points. Yeah. Oh, he Crazy postseason performer for sure. But yeah, Jordan and I had fun breaking that down if he should or should not be uh, in the Flyers Hall of Fame. But definitely 2010 just seems like an all-around great season. I know that you get a standing ovation. Yes. Yeah. Yes, sure. If the Flyers do come back this season, do you feel like they can kind of recapture the momentum they had? Or is, it, is this too long of a break to kind of just pick back up where you left off? It is the, the great unknown question for every team. Nobody's skating, Right. Yeah. Who has gyms in their homes? Some, most of the players were quarantined to their own apartments. I mean, were they quarant- could they go down to the workout facility in their apartment buildings? Uh, there's, uh, who knows what, facility, yeah. what workout facilities each player had? Yeah. You know, players have said, I'm trying to eat right. Oh, great. That, that should get you ready, right, for comeback. No, this, it, nobody knows. And uh, 
I yeah, think, no access to ice time. Yeah, right. you're right. I mean, there's very but hard circumstances. You, you, can, you can assume that most players aren't going to be able to do the same things, last as long on a shift, uh, stick handle as well, tee up shots as quickly and as easily. So the coaches, I think, that can coach a simplified approach to the game and a really good team defensive approach with the plot which the Flyers were playing because you don't need you really don't need as much puck skill to defend as you do to attack duh see that's why I'm a quality analyst I figure stuff out like that all the time <laughs> um, so it's simple what's that just get pucks in deep it's really simple Bill yeah you, get, you gotta work hard you gotta get the puck deep you gotta grind you gotta get in there on the boards and just do you know play hard and they're in and get it all done and the end Thank of the you. day, you know, we're going to win. Yeah. So. I would have loved to see that in intermissions for sure. I wish I saw it live. <laughs> no, but I think, I think that's going to be a key. Like if, if a player, like I will tell you right now, the, 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 a player that I would worry about with the Flyers trying to do too much and maybe making mistakes, trying to do too much, who would your pick be? If they said, which one Flyer might try to do too much with the puck and might have, might, might end up turning pucks over and creating difficulties for the Flyers. Travis Konechny, Bill? That's my choice. Okay. Yeah. DK's kind of a riverboat gambler anyway. And you know what? The brilliant players should play like that. And TK's gotten way better. He senses danger and understands his surroundings a lot better. But sometimes the more you want it, the more dangerous the play is, the lower the percentage of play you're going to try to make. Because you yeah. think, I can do this, I can do this. But you always have to ask yourself the question, okay, I'm going to go for it. I'm a brilliant player. What happens if I don't make it, yeah. right? If I turn the puck over right at their blue line or right inside their blue line or stuff like that. But, I mean, I'm, believe me, I'm not picking on TK. He is a star player and has grown so much each of the last couple of years. Yeah. And he, he brings people to their feet. He's an exciting player. And he's a stud. I mean, he's he wants the puck on his stick in, in key times. As long as when he comes back, it's not, okay, i got to remember him. He's got to remember I'm five feet outside their blue line yeah. or five feet inside their blue line. This is a dangerous place. Yeah, he has been growing, and specifically this season. Just sometimes when you take that risk, like there, yeah. there is a risk. You know, it could yeah. go one way or the other for him. Fortunately, with the risk, uh, a lot of good things have happened. But, Bill, overall, yeah. I will reiterate it again. Jordan agrees with me, I know it. But you are a great addition to the Flyers broadcast. Um, so fun to be working with you in my first season at NBC uh, Sports Philadelphia. I have so many things, too, that I just have question marks because I know how creative your one-liners are. I love hearing uh, your analysis on the games. How was it like to do the EA Sports, to, to record for the video games? Like, what was that process like? I can't even begin to imagine how that would go. It was really hard. <laughs> really really hard I'll tell you why because okay. when Gary and I did games I guess for about 10 years and then they replaced us when I left NBC and Gary wasn't working doing hockey anymore with uh, Ed Zoe and Doc and that, that's the way that's the way the game is played I mean I understand that but and I don't know if they still do it like this but when <clears throat> Gary and I would go to work and we worked in Vancouver for three or four years and then we moved down closer to a studio where Gary lived outside of Sarasota We'd walk into the studio and we sit down, microphone here, Gary would be facing me, his microphone there, and they would have a stack of legal size paper that thick in front of us with a description of scenarios on the ice. Scenario one might be, 
wrist shot from the blue line, low shot to the goalie's left, degree, uh, pad save, degree of difficulty, easy. And Gary would say, and here's a shot from the blue line. Oh, we tried to go low on that one. And so, you know, uh, uh, Carter Hart with a nice save. And I said, yeah, Gary, I said, I think he wanted to get a little more mustard on that one. I mean, it wasn't much of a shot and Hart had an easy time with it. They want four more versions of that different. The next scenario is shot from the blue line, puck halfway up the net, save with the glove. Um, let me back up. That low shot to the left, there were always three versions of it. Five, they want five versions of easy save, degree of save medium, degree of save difficult. Then they move the puck halfway up the net, glove save, degree of difficulty for the save easy, five versions of Gary reinventing how to say that, then five versions of medium difficulty, and Gary would have to reinvent five ways of saying that, and I would have to reinvent, in a perfect world, five different ways of describing it. And EA Sports producers are pretty smart. They realized years ago that it's almost like being locked in a room and being forced to write speed poetry, where you're trying to come up with things that rhyme day, hour after hour, and. After six hours, even after taking a break for lunch, Gary, he would start or he would get something said that's clean, like, oh, what a shot. And that's, that's a spectacular glove save. And I go, yes. for some You know, you know, the Liberty Mutual commercials, right? Liberty Butchimal. Yeah. That's trouble, right? Liberty Beverly. Am I allowed to riff? What about me coming out of the water? Come on, don't worry, we'll dub it. Right. But we, they realize after six hours, we start to get the giggles. We couldn't even get the simplest of words and statements out of our mouths because your brain goes, it just starts to short circuit and you're done. And yeah. they, they know if we could get the six hours, that's fine. And we do that three, three days in a row each year. We don't have to redo everything because we talk about, we do bios of players and stuff like that. But there was no video to see. There was no nothing. There was a written description that had to be tweaked that much each time and something different had to be said. Yeah. So it's really, really demanding. But that's what made it so rewarding and enjoyable. By the way, can you see this on my thumb? Does that show up? I have seen Oh my it. gosh, is that a blood blister? Yeah. See? Oh, man. For our listeners that are watching, Bill Clement has a blood blister on his thumb. I don't know if that's from working with a chainsaw, splitting wood, doing lumberjack things, maybe. Uh, I was actually <laughs> twisting some heavy wire with a pair of pliers because I was hanging up one of my bee catchers. And the pliers, oh, sounds like one of my typical days. <laughs> the pliers slipped. I hate that. There's only one thing I hate more than getting a blood blister. It's bending a nail back. Bending a fingernail back. Everybody goes, ooh! Yeah. <laughs> Give me I a saw, ooh. I saw that bill and I'm like, that's definitely uh, the outdoorsman bill right there. That was probably, I figured that was a mark from yeah. that. So. Well, my daughter is in London and we were FaceTiming with her uh, recently. And she said, dad, what's that on your thumb? I said, what? And I, what? So no, it's on your thumb. I went, oh, so I just realized you guys are probably seeing that blood blister too. Wait, no, go. it's okay. You, that, you, you go right to double jeopardy because you got that question, the answer to that question correctly. Yeah, <laughs> you, you definitely blister. did. Oh, uh, Bill, that is great. 
Bill, I can't tell you, I, I have so many people just ask me, and I'm sure Katie too, given Katie gets to work very closely with you. I have so many people ask me, do you ever get to talk about the game with Bill or even just pick his brain? And they're just so amazed uh, and, and they just love your insight. So I just know this for me and for Katie has been such a treat. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. And we're just so happy to see you're doing well. And we just, we can't wait to hear you call a game again soon. Thanks. I can't wait to be back there. I love you guys. You do a great job. And if you, you know, if you want to knock on my door again, uh, as long as I don't have my chainsaw in my hands and I don't have blood <laughs> blisters all over me, I, I'll jump on again with you. Yes. Clement, Clement, hands of cement. Thank you, know you for that, being with us. You know wrote that line for that commercial? <laughs> that was a Bud Light commercial. Yeah. You know, you know who wrote the line? No. <laughs> oh my gosh. Because you do it all. You're a screenwriter, you're an actor, you're an athlete, you're a broadcaster. Those were so I much mean, fun. Working with Barry Melrose, Phil Esposito, Brian Engblom. The, the <laughs> copy read, they're, these, the mullet heads from Hockey Falls are picking sides for road hockey. And they say, what about Clement? Ah, no, he can't check. That's what, the, that's what the line read. And I said to the director, I said, you know, that's one of the only things I could do when I played. Any chance of changing that line? He said, sure, you got any ideas? I said, what about... Clement, nah, hands of cement. So the three mullet, the, the mullet heads, or the four of them, I said, what about Clement? And, and they just all chimed in at the same time. Ah, Clement, Clement, hands of cement. And it really stuck. I still hear that from people around the country. Ah, hands of cement, how you doing? And I wrote it only because I, did, I, I thought, I, I can check. You can't say that about me that I couldn't check. It's the only thing I can do. <laughs> Oh, no, it, it has been a, a treat to have you on, Bill. Um, Thanks, Janie. You're welcome back any anytime. Hopefully we are back um, tossing it to each other on pre and post game yeah. sometime soon. But in the meantime, it's always good to catch up. Um, happy you have service up there in the mountains. That's definitely yes. a relief. I'll be up. We'll be, uh, we'll be good up here. We had actually only three cases of the coronavirus in our whole county. Wow. That's good. Yeah, good. so we, it's, it's, it's good to live in sparsely populated areas once in a while, you know? Yeah, hoping it stays that way and hoping you continue to be safe, you and your family and your daughter in London as well. Yeah, yeah, you guys too. All right, Bill, thanks. And thank you all for listening to the Flyers Talk podcast. DraftKings has partnered with United Way to help those affected by COVID-19. To join the rally, take a picture of you in a rally cap. Post it on social media. Take three friends and use the hashtag DKRally. DraftKings will donate $1 to United Way until they reach $1 million. Visit DraftKings.com slash DKRally for details. Bill Clement, thank you so much. Great to hear from you, and we can't wait to hear you call a game soon. That is the Flyers Talk podcast. Wherever you get your podcasts, please rate and subscribe, and we look forward to talking to you next time.